0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio. And the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Or to select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability.
1: This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly.
0: As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, and we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History Magazine today, and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre, or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash historybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. Last week, the winner of the 2020 Kundal History Prize was announced. The prize, of which we are a media partner, is awarded for the best English language history books. In today's episode, our deputy editor, Matt Elton, caught up with the winner – historian Camilla Townsend, who received the award for her book, Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs. Matt asked Camilla about her reaction to the award and their challenges of writing global history for a popular audience.
2: So I'm here today with Camilla Townsend, who is the winner of the 2020 Commonwealth History Prize. Uh, Camilla, the judges said some really lovely things about your books. They said it was crisp, beautifully written, shows real passion and enormous expertise. Um, How does it feel to have won?
1: It's rather overwhelming, I have to say. I, I literally almost couldn't believe it when they first said it. And even now, days later, I'm still having trouble uh, adjusting my mind to it. I, I think it's really a testament not so much to me as it is to the, the sources themselves, these indigenous writers of the 16th century. Uh, they did such a good job that it was easy for me to do a good job. <laughs>
2: Um, And that's one of the things the judges praised is your ability to use these sources and kind of uh, research using this language, which isn't broadly known today. Could you talk us through, for people who might not know, what your book's about and which sources you did use in writing it?
1: Right. The book is about the history of the Aztec people from about 100 years before the Spanish conquest to about 100 years after. So the conquest itself is pivotal, but it's not the beginning of all things or the end of all things. The sources that I used to write it were written in the Nahuatl, or Aztec, language uh, in the 16th and very early 17th century. What's unique about the project so far it won't remain unique forever, uh, is that these sources were written entirely off the, the European radar screen. That is, uh, the Spaniards didn't even know that these histories were being written. What we've had so far, besides the usual histories based on Spanish sources or based on archaeological digs, uh, we've had studies based on sources that were uh, written by indigenous people, but working hand in hand with Spanish friars. So the Spanish friar would say, for example, is it not true that you worship the dastardly God who believed in human sacrifice? And they would say, oh, yes, we worshiped the dastardly God who believed in human sacrifice. So then you end up with a history that's really um, based on responses and categories set up by Europeans. This study is different in that it works with sources written by Aztecs for Aztecs with their own grandchildren in mind. They never expected that we would be reading these histories. I think they'd be glad that we have, actually, because they they didn't want to be forgotten. But uh, they were based on an old tradition called the shupohuali, a way of telling history that they had had for many generations. The only difference was that they used the Roman alphabet that they had learned with the Spanish friars to write these histories down, to transcribe these oral performances. Um, so if you read a lot of them, you can put together quite a bit about their history. And that's what I have tried to do.
2: Was it, was it difficult getting to grips with this type of source?
1: Well, yes, I suppose it was a bit difficult. It is always time-consuming to learn another language. And I did begin my study in the 1990s. It was probably only five to ten years ago that I think I really got good enough to get some of the nuances of what they were talking about. But, you know, the bigger issue probably is not so much the language. There are plenty of other people around the world who do study Nahuatl, and there are, in fact, a million and a half native speakers in Mexico today the thing is, you can't just read one or two of these histories. You have to read an awful lot of them and recognize the patterns in them. Otherwise, since they weren't written for us, they just seem strange. Um, you just get a sense of other people doing things and understanding history very differently than we do, and you're left rather uncertain what to make of it. But once you read a lot of them, you begin to see what it is that matters to these historians and why they're constructing things the way they are. And then you can put it in terms that modern and Western readers can make something of. So in to that extent, it was difficult. Okay.
2: Do you think that difficulty is one of the reasons why these sources and these stories aren't perhaps as widely known in the West as they otherwise should be?
1: It absolutely is. Because in truth, I would say beginning in the 70s and, well, even a bit earlier, Western scholars and the reading public have been interested in the perspectives of the other, as we sometimes say. So, it simply isn't true that it hasn't occurred to anybody to ask what Native Americans thought of this or that situation. Uh, But because of the difficulty of accessing these sources in a meaningful way, we've often been left with these other kinds of sources that I described that were written sort of half in Spanish or entirely in Spanish with the guidance of Spaniards. Uh, So, uh, It has been hard for us to read these these texts the way they deserve to be read, and I think that is exactly what has kept people away for a while, but not for much longer, I think.
2: Um, And this is obviously an impossibly broad question, but what what different picture emerges of these people when we look at them through their own eyes compared to the sources we're perhaps more used to?
1: Right, in some ways, of course. We do get the familiar story that is the Spaniards didn't lie about the order of events, so when one reads this book i think I think a typical reader would find uh, the same history that they expect to find on one level. Uh, you know the Europeans arrive, the battles happen, the Europeans win. but it does enrich the picture, I think, uh, to get the behind the scenes uh, the perspective of those who didn't uh, who didn't win those battles and therefore didn't get to write the histories. Um, For example, there's an old, old story that has been much repeated that the the Aztecs were were waiting for the return of their god, Quetzalcoatl, and these Aztec histories make very clear that that's simply not the case. There was was no such prophecy, and they did not think Cortes was was a god. Um, So, you can only maintain that belief if you continue to read sources written by Spaniards or influenced by Spaniards in the later part of the century, when you read their histories that just disappears, and in fact, you end up seeing some rather savvy generals and political leaders who were trying to figure out why the Europeans had this technological edge and trying to figure out what they were going to do about it. Far from worshipping, you know, at the altar of these new gods.
2: Something else the judges said was that your book reminds us of the need to look harder at indigenous people's stories, and also about the way in which history gets written as a whole. Do you think? Um, That's right. And do you think that your book says something about the way that we should consider these sorts of histories more generally?
1: Yes, that's a a very interesting point. I think what happens when we don't really understand the other people in the story is that we allow ourselves, that are the cultural heirs of the winners, we allow ourselves to paint rather flattering portraits of of ourselves or our, our sort of figurative ancestors in what happened. Uh, I, I guess what we just touched on is a great example. The, the long, the lasting nature, the longevity of this story about uh, Hernando Cortez being perceived as a white god. It's kind of surprising when you think about it that that would last right through the multicultural era, right into the politically correct early 2000s. But on some primal level, it's so flattering to think that they, they thought my, my, my forebears were gods. I mean, so we are not only going to tell a more sort of offer a more accurate rendition, um, but I think stop ourselves from It was just feeding our own vanities, creating narratives that feed our own vanities, which ultimately weakens us and makes us less wise. And we can do this better if we really hear what the other people have to say about what was going on.
2: When you're writing a book like this, do you have in your mind what might happen to it after it's published? Or can you only really think about it up until it's it's finished on the page?
1: Mostly, I think I can only think about it as I'm writing on the page. The one exception is that one does have to imagine a bit of an audience, otherwise you change voice. When I was a younger writer, I think on some unconscious level, I sometimes imagined different people. Sometimes it was my grandmother, sometimes it was a student, sometimes it was uh, some uh, educated reader of the the New York Times or the London Times. And so I would uh, change my voice and change my perspective and editors would have to slap my hand, figuratively speaking. I think I was imagining an audience but that audience was sort of an advanced undergraduate audience i was talking to my students i was i was talking to educated lay people in other words of course i did have things to say that my fellow scholars needed to hear but i wasn't writing the book for them per se in, in on any kind of unconscious level so I was far, far from imagining that it would ever win any prizes. It wasn't the point. The point was to tell the history as the Aztecs would have wanted it to be told, according to my understanding of what they wanted, because there's so much silliness out there, uh, so many silly things still written about the Aztecs. And when I'm designing courses and assigning things to students or just recommending things to colleagues. I used to have a, a bit of trouble because there is so much out there um, that although readable is just deeply wrong, and I now know how wrong it is now that I know their sources. So so yes, I imagined it a, a bit beyond the, the writing of the page, but I wasn't thinking about prizes just communicating with these people that I'm used to communicating with, uh, students and, and colleagues. It has been a great joy for me Uh, that it has one, And I think that is because it does matter to me very, very much that these Indigenous sources be known. So often we hear, oh, you know, only the winners get to tell the story, so there's really nothing much we can do. And of course, that's not the case in this case. Uh, There are lots and lots of sources uh, written in Indigenous languages. So I hope that this helps shine a light on that fact. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The world is ready now to hear the perspectives of others from their own angle of vision and even in their own words. We've long been willing to give lip service to the idea that all people mattered. I'd say that started big time in the 1970s, although, as I said, even earlier in some ways. Uh, But this is different. We seem now to be willing to really hear uh, in some depth the perspective of other people.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Is it a challenge sort of taking that responsibility of telling these people's stories and translating it to a popular audience?
1: It's very much of a challenge. It's interesting that you're aware of that. I think few people are. Rather, it seems easy somehow to write a book that is uh, readable rather than one that's written in erudite prose with lots and lots of subordinate clauses, right? But in truth, I have found that writing a really readable book, but that nevertheless accurately represents very profoundly different cultures uh, or and or that raises very difficult issues, I have found that to be a very difficult to do in straightforward language. And in, indeed, early readers of early drafts said that I wasn't succeeding very well. So, for instance, I might refer to a particular person, um, let's say, Chimalpahin to me, he's a familiar guy. But my readers of these early drafts would say, I'm sure you told us who he is, but I don't remember. This is, you know, it's not like you're referring to Winston Churchill or, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We don't remember. So, I had to figure out how to remind everybody in a quick sentence who this guy was, but without going back to retread the, really the same, the same ground. Um, I think I got better at it over time as I worked on these drafts. And, the, and that's where, um, you know, g- great publishers come in handy. Uh, it was it was uh, Oxford's University Press that helped me through that process.
2: And how long does that process take of writing this book? When did you first start this research up until the time in which it was published?
1: Well, if you ask about the research, then in effect, we're going back to the 1990s, when I first started studying the Nahuatl language and began to realise that the richness of the sources that exist in that language. I suppose one could also say it began about ten years ago when I got very serious about studying the annals, the the shupo huali, the the year counts, the the histories that they wrote. Um, I had won a Guggenheim Award specifically to study those annals. And it was in that year that I began to realize, not only do I need to write a book about these sources and for other scholars, the history of these sources, I need to tell the history that's in these sources uh, for everybody. Uh, So I guess you could say something less than 10 years ago, I got serious about it. And then it was a process of about four years to actually write the book. It takes a long time, in other words. Yeah, it's a short book, but
2: there's a lot of time in there. And and what's interesting is that at the moment, there seems to be um, renewed or perhaps even new interest in telling the stories of groups outside the West or groups whose voices haven't been told, such as this. Do you think this reflects a wider sort of cultural Um, shift. I know you said this has been in the works for for many years. Do you think, though, that there's a wider shift towards this kind of history?
1: I absolutely do. I think it's notable that all three of the top finalists in the Kundal process were books about the non-West, in effect, about... um, colonialism's effects in one case in India in one case in the Caribbean and in one case in Mexico i actually asked the 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 jury afterwards Was it the case that they ended up looking for such books since all three were? And they said, no, these rose naturally to the top and that they, too, were surprised at how many books in the pool were, in fact, about what we shorthandedly call non-Western themes. It does seem to me that the work of the last decade or so is really coming to fruition now and undoubtedly will continue, that, as you say, the world is ready now to hear The perspectives of others from their own angle of vision and even in their own words. We've long been willing to give lip service to the idea that all people mattered. I'd say that started big time in the 1970s, although, as I said, even earlier in some ways. Uh, But this is different. We seem now to be willing to really hear uh, in some depth the perspective of other people. And I think that's wonderful and opens up new horizons to uh, to your generation and the next generation. I, I really do. I mean,
2: Are there things that you think global popular history still needs to do better?
1: Well, I suppose, now here I am a bit of a homer for my own team, but I do suppose that more people should study other languages. Um, English really is the lingua franca. I mean, just think of the ease with which we can have this conversation and, and around the world, too. As you, as you know, you know, if someone from Kazakhstan meets with someone from Sweden, they tend to speak in English. And indeed, uh, because of England's form or the Britain's former power, many of the colonial sources are actually uh, written in English, too. I believe uh, Vincent Brown's uh, work was based largely on English sources, for instance. So we can do a lot. We can do a lot with English and uh, then add in Spanish and French even more. But I do hope that there are more and more scholars, young scholars, who are willing to put in the time and energy that it takes to study other uh, languages, indigenous languages, languages that represent the other on a more more profound level, because it will make a big difference. I think this is a, a case in point.
2: Are there recent history books that you particularly enjoyed?
1: You know, I really think that what I want to say, because it's what I really mean, everybody should read the other two finalists, The Anarchy and Tucky's Revolt. I have asked for copies for Christmas myself. Talking with the authors and about the books, listening to the tapes about them, have demonstrated to me how rich these studies are. Uh, And I'm very happy to sort of take the word of the Kundal Committee. Uh, So I think that they would be where I would start.
2: What was really nice for me getting to talk to the people involved in this prize was it got me to read books that I may not necessarily have come across otherwise. Do you think that's one of the values of this kind of award?
1: I absolutely do. I have been struck throughout the process of how much work uh, the prize organisation, the Kundal organisation, and then later the jury did in that regard. They begin with a long list, then it moves to a short list, then the top three, and then finally the winner. And at each stage, they are in effect advertising in meaningful and intellectual terms the work that is going on in the field of history around the world. And I can't think of a better way to do that, really. Um, They, too, commented, one of the judges commented on how uh, rich the world of historical writing is right now. And as you say, most of us wouldn't find out about uh, these books that are far from our own fields or far from our own areas of interest without such competition. So I think it is a, a terrific job that they're doing in that regard.
2: And what's next for you and, I suppose, the book?
1: Well... I think perhaps what's next for the book uh, is that it uh, shall appear in Spanish in Mexico quite soon. Uh, that was actually going to happen anyway, but now it'll happen faster uh, and with more with more interest. And I think that that's good. Uh, many Mexicans have written about the Aztecs also, uh, and m- many of them will undoubtedly soon surpass this book uh, because some of them also know these sources this perhaps might inspire more of them to write uh, other synthetic works that bring more attention to the marvelous heritage uh, that they have there um so i suppose that's what will happen next in that regard um as for me i'm actually working now on quite a different project about the Lenape, or Delaware people, who lived in the New York City area. Uh, Some of their stories were written down before the language disappeared. It isn't entirely gone yet, but it largely is. Um, And I'm working with a Delaware co-author on that study. So hopefully we'll have more to say about the ancient peoples in the New York City area sometime soon.
2: I mean, how how do you decide what project to, to choose next?
1: You know, I rarely have made a conscious choice. The projects come to me in some sense. I started to study Nahuatl because I was writing a a sort of biography about Doña Marina, the woman who translated for Hernando Cortez, and I thought I should learn this woman's language, even though she didn't write in it. I should just have exposed myself, and it was in doing that that I discovered the sources. And in discovering the sources, I wrote a book about the sources. And then I realized I should write the book that's in the sources. Um, And the the Lenape project came to me as well. Uh, Somebody brought uh, the the idea to me that we uh, here at Rutgers uh, public university ought to know more about the the people whom we have displaced. Uh, So over and over again, I find it's rather serendipitous. Uh, The gods bring the studies to me in effect. I, I wish I could say I had a concerted plan, but I can't. Thank
2: you so much for your time, because I know you're super busy at the moment, so I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. That
0: was Camilla Townsend. Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. You can also hear an in-depth interview with Camilla, along with those of fellow finalists William Dalrymple and Victor Brown, in our back catalogue, at historyextra.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Chris Harding will be giving a lecture on the history of Japan.